Welcome to Our Global Campus, Engage the World Through Illinois podcast series, a product of the International Programs Team within the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. This podcast features the international and intercultural experiences of students and professionals who dare to explore life on the other side of their cultural assumptions. Each episode unpacks the complexities that often attend the journey of finding one's place in the world. Hey guys, I'm Ava Marginian. And I'm Kayla Constabilio. And we are doing an LAS Global Leaders Program Takeover for the LAS Our Global Campus podcast. We're both members of the LAS Global Leaders Program, also known as GLP from here on out, uh, which is an on-campus application-only four-year program, which focuses on teaching human-centered design and learning about solving real-world problems in collaboration with local and international community organizations. Today, we are going to be talking about a passion both of us share, football, or as it's known in the States, soccer. A note, we'll be using these terms interchangeably on the podcast today. This past December, our campus was able to experience an event that happens once every four years and captured the attention of the entire world, the Men's FIFA World Cup, arguably the world's biggest sporting event. On campus, watch parties and social media allowed students to connect while watching the game and experiencing the pain of our teams losing and the excitement of our teams winning day in and day out throughout the entire tournament. So funny story, while we were in Virginia on a service learning trip right after finals with Nakia, we both spoke about football together and the World Cup and we actually forced Nakia to sit down (laughs) and watch the World Cup final with us. Yes, we did. And we weren't actually able to watch the second half of that final live, but we did watch the second half together in extra time as well as the PK shootout with Nakia, as Kayla said, as well as some of our other friends on the trip. Yeah, and I think Nakia was pretty mind blown. Uh, <laughs> she was. From there, we kind of explained to Nakia exactly how big football is, uh, the basic rules of the game, and what exactly is so important about the World Cup. And from that experience, she suggested that we come on the podcast to talk more about soccer and its impact and importance on the world. Right. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how soccer has influenced globalization in our world. We're going to be doing this by exploring five key questions and discussing them with incorporating our own experiences and observations. We're also going to be using a book called A Theory of Globalization, How Soccer Explains the World by Franklin Foyer. Um, It's worth noting that a lot of the following are his opinions, including um, our own opinions we're going to include. And no worries if you haven't read this book, we're going to break everything down for you. That's right. So the five questions that we're going to be discussing today. The first is, how is soccer more than just a sport? Then we're going to go into how do we mix diverse people while respecting differences without causing conflict? Following that, we're going to talk about how rivalries of football clubs factor into that group of diverse people. Then we're going to talk about what the intersection of soccer and politics is and what issues are perceived as political in the world of soccer. And finally, we're going to talk about how we can globalize responsibly and equitably and how football can be a platform for positive change in the world. Let's get started. I'm excited. Woo! To start off, we're going to be talking about a concept we like to call globalization. Get it? Because it's, it's <laughs> like goals in soccer, but globalization. 
Uh, but what that really means to us is that soccer is more than a sport. Um, in many ways, it, it runs the world around us. It can run a lot of different political uh, a lot of different political policies in different countries around the world. It can bring communities together or fracture them. Um, it can bring different countries together or create huge divides. So um, in many ways, it is just more than a sport, more than a pastime, more than a simple form of entertainment. That might be hard to kind of grasp uh, for Americans <laughs> uh, if you just haven't seen the scale of it around the world. But we're going to dive deeper into that. Yeah, for sure. I think the uh, best examples of this are definitely in Europe, uh, particularly when you look at Eastern Europe and the Baltic region. And you see how, especially in areas like Serbia, there's clubs there that are so influenced by race relations and gang relations that it spills over. And so you see people literally getting killed by other gangs just for the teams they support because of the areas that it's in, which is, I think, a very foreign concept to the United States where that's just it's not really an ingrained part of our culture. You're not going to have people getting killed over the NFL, for example, which is it's an mm. extreme example. But right. Yeah. So when we talk about the Yugoslavian war in the in the Baltics in the 90s. Uh, we can really look at the star at the club Red Star in Belgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and their hooligan gang was a major part of the war. Um, so prior to this, uh, their rivals, their their rivalries with other teams was really an extenuation of World War II. Many chants at the stadiums included, uh, they would chant about war crimes, they would chant about ethnic identities. So really football allowed these tensions to continue on for a long time past World War II. Um, and in 1991, when Croatia and Slovenia declared independence from Yugoslavia, Serbia then declared war, Um, but a problem was they actually couldn't find enough soldiers, so what they did was they enlisted the hooligans themselves from Red Star, from the Red Star gang. Um, The hooligans really actually did attack Croatians, Muslims, really anyone they saw as non-Serbian. They would sing chants in Mm -hmm. the stadium during the war. They would sing about being on the front line, about being in war. So so these hooligans really weren't just kids getting together on Saturdays, you know, causing trouble. These were really violent occurrences. Yeah, no, they were very violent criminals, and they killed thousands of people absolutely brutally, um, which led to the West backing Croatia in the war. Um, so in that way, the hooligans kind of lost the war for Serbia because they were so violent about it. But it really goes to show that soccer— it, it allowed those race relations and the tensions to continue. And honestly, mm-hmm. it still does till this day. Serbia and Croatia, they don't play each other often on the national team scale. Perhaps it's a good thing because mm-hmm. they are bitter, bitter rivals as a result of these conflicts in post-World War II and the Cold War um, and all of that stuff. So soccer is just an ingrained part of it. Absolutely, yes. Another big ethnic clash we see uh, between identities via football um, really is the Protestant Glasgow Rangers and the Catholic Glasgow Celtics. Um, So actually, the Celtics were started by um, a Catholic clergyman, so they really do have origins in the Catholic tradition. Um, But really, Glasgow Rangers were never Protestant until uh, the Celtics started being successful. And a lot of Protestant fans at the time actually took control really of the Rangers in order to battle against the Celtics really in a metaphorical but not so metaphorical 
continuation of the war between Protestantism and Catholicism in Ireland. Yeah, and um, it's kind of funny because you don't really think of Western Europe as a place where this kind of stuff still happens, but I think this is a prime example of historical rivalry, rivalries carrying over to the present. Um, the Rangers wear orange to commemorate Prince William of Orange kicking out the Catholic monarchy. Um, they promote violence at times to get the rivalry going. Um, there's nine times more ER patients on rivalry weekends, 80 deaths over the years. It's a very serious rivalry, and people take the history seriously um, in the present application of it. And I think a lot of times it's it's kind of used as a proxy almost um, in order for people to project their prejudice and mm -hmm. they can use it as a safe way to express that hatred or dislike for this one group of people by using soccer almost as an excuse for it. Oh, we don't like Celtics. It's not that we don't like Catholics. It's that we don't like Celtics right. or vice versa. Celtics saying we don't like Rangers. It's not about Protestantism or religion. It's about soccer. Um, so in that way, it's almost a proxy war kind of on the field of play each time, which is interesting when you talk about soccer and peacekeeping too in the modern day. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think Glasgow actually represents kind of an odd phenomenon because a lot of globalization theorists today would take a modern city like Glasgow and they would assume that it would overcome this kind of tribalism because um, the theory goes that with economic prosperity comes more liberalism, more tolerance, more diversity. Um, but that's really not the case here in Glasgow. We've honestly seen this rivalry rage on through football. Yeah, it's extremely interesting to look at the connections between globalization and liberalism versus authoritarianism and how the different aspects of that can play out. Um, another great example of that being soccer in Iran, which takes it kind of a very different way. While it still perpetuates a conflict, it allows the people to express their displeasure with a theocratical government that they are not always mm -hmm. pleased with 100% of the time. Oh, yes. I love the Iranian people. <laughs> oh, boy. Awesome. Yes, I, I could go on for that. Uh, for a long time, uh, for anyone unaware, um, Iran has a long history of its people kind of rising up and forming uh, really revolutionary periods. Anytime their national team has even the slightest success, really. So I, I'm sure most of us are aware of the current revolution going on in Iran with people protesting in the streets, many women removing hijab and cutting their own hair. And really, this started. Uh, coinciding with Iran's success in the World Cup. Even just their qualification for the World Cup was pretty historic. And that really empowers people to take to the streets. Um, in many ways, soccer and the success of whatever team you support is almost kind of a, a success for you, even though you're not on the field. It can really promote your own identity, your community's identity. And therefore, anytime the Iranian national team plays, there's I mean, they could be playing halfway across the world, but there is more police presence in the streets. Um, leaders in the country prepare for uprising because that's exactly what happens each time um, the team wins is the citizens are emboldened. Uh, so I think we really see that with our current World Cup, even though Iran didn't, you know, make it past the group stage. I think just merely making it to that world stage was huge for the people, huge for their protests, for their revolution and just gaining that media exposure. A hundred percent, especially considering how the Iranian government sees soccer and football as this 
extremely Western sport with this connection mm-hmm. to the West that goes against what their government stands for. So a lot of times when there's the national team playing, whether it's the World Cup or friendlies, there's a lot of people in the streets. People are going against their traditional theocratical government, things like wearing hijabs. They play Western music. They drink. Women are out in the streets and celebrating and attempting to break into stadiums to watch their national team play because they want to be there, but the government doesn't allow them to be there. There. And mm-hmm. so you see a lot of emboldened people who see an Iranian victory as a success, as something they want to see, as something they want to be there to support and fight for. Uh, and it really kind of inflames the passions, you could say, of the Iranian people, which is extremely, I mean, it's insane that soccer has that power in mm-hmm. the world to create such a uprising almost. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really incredible platform, especially when we saw in the Iranian national team, their first game, all the players did not sing the national anthem um, in, a, in a form of protest. And as you can imagine, the Iranian leadership did not like that. They were essentially forced to sing the national anthem. There's come their second game. Most players uh, essentially mumbled it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, in a country where speaking out can be extremely dangerous for one's personal safety— we really see football emboldening people to do so because it really gives you that that power in numbers. Yeah, and it definitely gives you the platform behind it. It, it means the world is watching. The world is watching. There are billions of people that watch this tournament every four years. And so it, if there's any place to make a statement, it it would be the World Cup. Absolutely. You know, I actually want to ask you, many other teams protested uh, on Iran's behalf, actually. So we have mm-hmm. Germany covering their mouths in their pregame picture for their first game, um, really in protest, in solidarity with the Iranian people. More than that, really just in protest with people who have been silenced, both in Iran, those in Qatar who were silenced, uh, you know, not allowed to wear pride merch, uh, certain journalists silenced. um, But they've actually reached a lot of backlash on that because of their dismissal of Mesut Ozil, Mm -hmm. uh, a former player, really a rock star for them. Um, But he did speak out against the discrimination he faced as a Muslim, as an immigrant in the country. And and they really dismissed him for the political noise he was making. So what do you what do you take of that whole scenario? Uh, Well, I think the best example to point to to this is we go back to 2016 and we see Colin Kaepernick in the NFL taking a knee during the national anthem with all the Black Lives Matter protests going on in the United Mm -hmm. States. And the only like high profile athlete who supported him at that time was Megan Rapinoe. And she faced like he faced a ton of backlash. Obviously, this is not negating that. But in terms of soccer, she faced an extreme amount of backlash for bringing politics into soccer, especially because the women's game was getting its footing still. And it still is today. But especially then she faced an extreme amount of backlash. And now you look at the women's team today for the U.S. and they are known as a team who stands up for what they believe Mm -hmm. in, whether it's equal pay, women's rights, LGBTQIA plus rights, all of that. So I think it shows how far we've come um, in terms of the sport and standing up for what's right. But I also think it shows that there is still very much a lot of hypocrisy within the sport. Mm-hmm. And there are people and teams, I mean, you look at FIFA, FIFA's like, oh, equal, like we're, in, we're an equal opportunity agency, whatever you want to call it. They stand for that. They stand for equality. But at the same time, you have the president who's threatening to 
uh, ban teams from participating in tournaments if they wear pride armbands because of the differences in Qatar. So right. that kind of goes into our next question, which is how do we mix diverse people while respecting differences without causing conflict, which I think is a super complicated question. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to take it slow. But any initial thoughts on that? You know, um, I think in sport, there's always going to be conflicts. That That is the nature of competition. However, I think when you mingle in identity, when you mingle in um, diverging viewpoints, that conflict can kind of boil over into, into, into what we wouldn't condone anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of going forward, how do we... How do we manage that? Um, I think we really have to stress the the separation between soccer and politics and religion, even though they are so, so intertwined at this point in time. Um, again, it's easy to say it's just a game, but for so many fans out there, it represents a lot more than that. But at the same time, we do have to remember that the when... When we are face-to-face with people who may have diverging viewpoints, different backgrounds than us, people we dislike because they're simply not us, we do have to remember their humanity. You know, at at, at the same time that, you know, a bunch of different fans come into the stadium chanting their own songs, wearing their own jerseys, cheering on their own team, they're essentially doing the same thing. They may be doing it for different groups, but... It's the same humanity mm-hmm. there. It's the same human experience going on. So I think that's something we have to recognize. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's definitely important to remember that we're human too, right? Though not making, making, having respect towards people while also not making too many concessions. Um, but again, that's a really fine line to draw. Um, and while there's definitely room to go, I think Qatar could have handled it worse. Um, that's a low bar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a yeah. low bar for sure. Oh. Um, especially considering the migrant deaths and the silencing of mm-hmm. individual players and also the institutions of countries. Because frankly, I think while Qatar can say we feel this way because these are our rules, a country like England or Germany should also be allowed to say we feel like this way, even though they're going to this other country. Because remember, you have to bid to host the World Cup. Qatar Mm -hmm. did sign up for it, just like U.S., Canada, and Mexico is signing up for it in four years, just like Spain signed up for it before, Brazil, all of them. Mm -hmm. So it's it goes both ways. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in this scenario, FIFA really has to act as the governing body. Um, I really think wherever FIFA goes, they kind of sell their values down the river if you can if you can say that they have values um really they are interested in getting the highest bid no matter where that ends up being and no matter what kind of harm that causes um so you know when they sold it to qatar for a record was it over a billion dollars perhaps i think it was around it was a lot of money it was around one billion highest world cup bid ever um they they really knew what they were doing they knew that um they knew about Qatar's migrant worker policy. They knew about um, essentially the slave labor contracts that are going on in that mm-hmm. in that stadium. You know, about ninety percent of Qatar's population are migrant workers from predominantly Southeast Asia, and we saw more deaths in the construction of these stadiums than in all previous World Cups combined. You know, so really unacceptable behavior. Um, but it's going to happen if FIFA allows it to. If FIFA says, oh, yeah, you got the right price, we'll sell you the World Cup, things like that are going to happen. 
So I think I think FIFA holds a huge as as an international organization they hold a huge responsibility, a huge responsibility and a huge amount of power, mm-hmm. um, which they continue to really not use wisely. I would say, um, and I feel like especially when you look at the FIFA president interview he gave earlier this year um, with his infamous "I feel" statements, where mm. he compared um, his own experiences as an Italian and a redhead to discrimination faced by people of color, people of the LGBTQIA plus community, migrants, migrant workers, immigrants, um, which many people, myself included as a child of immigrants and a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, found very out of touch. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as long as you have whatever his intentions may have been, as long as you have someone who feels like it's okay to say stuff like that without even thinking about what they're saying seemingly, um, it's not a surprise that those kind of decisions end up happening. Right. And it's definitely something that going forward needs to be worked on and needs to be addressed on an international level because FIFA is an international organization with an extreme amount of power within soccer and therefore within the world. Yeah, absolutely. Mas que un club. (laughs) Because it's so true. That means more than a club. And that is FC Barcelona's slogan. Uh, really a international club out of Barcelona. Their, their jerseys are sold worldwide. Their players are revered worldwide. Um, honestly, one of the biggest franchises football has ever seen. For sure. Um, but the reason they're my favorite club, despite the fact that they're just the best. <laughs> In your dreams. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um The reason they're my favorite club is because for me, they have embodied diversity without conflict. They have embodied globalization while maintaining diversity. And another thing I really admire about Barcelona is that although they are this global franchise, um, they really haven't been driven by profits or been driven by capitalism. So for for a very long time, um, Barca is the only club in the world with no sponsor on their shirt. So really any other club you see, they're going to have that sponsor right on their chest. Um, and of course, the sponsor is important. It provides a lot of money to the club, but that comes with a price. You tempt you, you you tend to have to listen to your sponsor and, and do as they say. Um, but Barcelona has not sold their club, really. They haven't sold their identity and their mission um, for any sort of sponsor. And that's, again, something I really, really appreciate. Of course, that's a privilege for them to be able to do. Um, but it just shows that they are valuing tradition, history, community above profit. Yeah, and that is definitely something that not all clubs can say that they do. Um, My club in particular, Manchester United, is one of those that has sold their souls to the devil. (laughs) Um, Not within sponsorships, but within our club ownership, which is another big thing in soccer. Because some clubs do it differently, where they have like stake ownerships by supporters. Other clubs have millionaires or billionaires in this case buy out their clubs Barca uh, is a democracy by the fans just yes, throw that in there they are um, Manchester going. United is not <laughs> <laughs> Manchester United is not um, which is a big bone of contention with supporters of our club because the family that owns it right now is the Glazers and they are Americans which is a whole other thing because there's a lot of sentiments about Americans in football especially in England and their ability to know and respect the history because obviously I'm an American. Kayla's born in America. Um, 
we know and respect the history of football, but not all Americans do. And that's just a fact. And a lot of people in England, especially in Manchester, feel that the Glazer family doesn't respect the footballing history of Manchester United. They're a massive English club, um, a a global club now. uh, And a lot of times the money put into the club, it's supposed to be a give and take where the ownership gets money and they're supposed to put it back into the club. And then you make a profit of it. But the point is to give money to the club, to allow the club to develop, to invest in players, to invest in your academy, to invest in your women's team, to invest in better sporting facilities, medical equipment, whatever it is, you're investing back in the club. Mm -hmm. And the Glazers have been taking money out of the club in excess um, since they've been owners. And it rubs a lot of people the wrong way, myself included as a disclaimer, Mm. um, for a lot of reasons. And I mean, I like to joke that because the Glazers also own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that they took money from Manchester United and used it to pay Tom Brady's salary, but... That's not a joke. <laughs> it's, it's not a joke, but for legal reasons, no. Um, but it's it's a very serious thing in soccer when you look at this sport who... Um, there's a show on Netflix called The English Game, which if you haven't seen it, check it out because it talks about the roots of the Premier League in particular. And soccer is a working man's sport. It's a sport for the people. It was originally a sport that... Anyone can play. Anyone can watch. It's what you did on the weekends. It's what you do with your friends when you've got time. All you need is something that's round in shape and a small patch of grass, and that's that. you're good to go. My dad grew up in communist Romania. He would play soccer on the little street barriers when he was a kid. It's mm. something that everyone can play. Everyone can see. Everyone can watch. You look at the modern day and how soccer is developing with these big billionaires buying these clubs and taking money out of them while still charging more for tickets and more for merchandise and more for all of this stuff. You have to pay money to go into the academy. Look at someone like Marcus Rashford, who Mancunian born and bred. He's from Manchester. He had to work and his parents had to sacrifice so much monetary wise Mm -hmm. to get him to where he is that maybe a person like him who is on like a meal plan, wasn't eating all his meals as a kid, that kind of stuff, which is why he cares passionately about that stuff now mm-hmm. maybe isn't able to develop their talent and become the soccer player they want to be because of money and how the clubs are being run it's a massive issue in today's game um, especially considering the implications for the future and commercialism and how that's impacting a sport that's not really it was never intended to be a commercial endeavor right yeah I think that's the major downfall we've seen with the globalization of the sport um, is just that elitism that we're seeing. You know, tickets used to be uh, really priced for for blue-collar workers, and now they are triple digits, you know, to go see a game. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a major disappointment to see, really, in the global game right now. Um, but, you know, looking forward, how do you think we're able to globalize responsibly? How do you think we're able to bring soccer, but to bring a lot of different things onto this global scale and do it equitably and responsibly? Yeah, that's, again, it's a different, a difficult question, and I don't think either of us are going to come up with an answer to no. it um, within the bounds of this podcast. But it's definitely something that I think 
the people and the fans of football have to be involved in, um, which is something that I think has been gaining more traction, but has also been missing recently. Mm. Um, you look at things like how FIFA is organized, how different clubs are ran, like Manchester United, for example, and how people were unhappy with the Glazers and the Glazers started putting more effort into hearing from the fans, which do I personally think that's enough? Absolutely not. But it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so hearing from the people who partake in this sport who want to play listening to them and getting those those opinions and those perspectives is super important will it fix all the problems absolutely not but yeah it's definitely going somewhere i mean you talk about human-centered design to make the kia happy (laughs) but it's it's applicable talking to the people who you're trying to create solutions for in terms of who is affected most by globalization you'd look at like countries in the Middle East or in East Asia, Southeast Asia, the ones who are making the clothes, the ones who are Mm -hmm. doing that hard labor and the labor that is a lot cheaper because of regulations in certain countries and figuring out how we can work from the ground up to help those people and also change our own habits so that we're not perpetuating an unfair system, which that's ideal. It's hard to do. (laughs) Right. No, I mean, bringing in HCD, I think, uh, I don't know if you've actually watched this show, but welcome to Wrexham. Um, I have I have not yet, but I want yeah, to. I highly recommend Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> just watched it. For those who don't know, uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney, two American stars, they bought the oldest club in Wales, um, one of the oldest clubs in the world, actually. Um, and we're not going to get into all the details, but essentially they have been playing in one of the bottom, the lowest professional league for a long time. And, and prior to this, they were one of the UK's best teams. Um but mm-hmm. for me, they came in, huge movie stars, huge money. Um, the club had a long history of corrupt owners, people who just wanted to buy the club and milk it for money. Um, Use its history and its supporters. Absolutely, yep. Their su- the support is, is insane. It is a community to see. But they came in, and of course the community had their, their fears. They were worried. It was just another corrupt owner who wanted to make some money. But what they did was they talked to the community members themselves anytime Mm -hmm. they were going to make a decision. Um, They worked with the community members. They filmed this whole uh, documentary, essentially. It's on Hulu. Go go, Go watch watch it. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) But they were community first because they knew that was the most important thing about the club was that, yeah, the club kind of sucked for a while. um, But the, the supporters were there. Every Tuesday, every Saturday, away or at home, they were there to support their team because it, it really it, it embodied their identity themselves. It was a place for people to meet, people to chat about their family, about their friends. It, it was the community gathering space. So so Ryan and Rob went in and they, did, they didn't let that slip through. They really talked to the people about every single thing they did. Yeah, they are definitely an example of what to do right yeah. um, when you are fortunate enough to have that much money and the ability to spend that much time and obviously not everyone has that resource um time money whatever it is but it's definitely commendable what they did for that club in terms of giving it the modern day necessity of money which again it's it's sad that's what it's needed Mm -hmm. um to succeed honestly um but it's beautiful to see what they've been able to do with the club while talking with the people who love and support that club so much to just inject a little bit of something that is unfortunately necessary in order to make it 
what it was for the fans again and a place that they can continue to love and support and pass on through their families and traditions. Yeah. Well, what I think is really special about football as a sport is that, yes, of course, it takes money to build up, but it also takes a special culture. Um, And I think that's why we're seeing some kind of new players come to the stage in terms of the World Cup. Mm -hmm. Um, We had Japan beating, uh, what was it, Spain and... And another big European superpower. Um, so huge new team coming to the forefront of the stage. Um, of course, the big underdog story of the past World Cup was Morocco. Morocco. Yes. Um, they actually were the first African and Arab nation to make it to a semifinal in a World Cup. And on their run, they beat three former colonizers, uh, Spain, France. What was the third? Help me out here. Um, I believe it was. Spain, France, and... Belgium? I believe it was. Spain, Belgium, and Portugal. Oh, Portugal. Because France made it. Yeah, because they lost to France. Yes, excuse me. They did not beat France. (laughs) No, No, yeah, Spain, Belgium, and Portugal, which were big games, insane. And I think, I don't know if you were watching the game, what was it, the quarterfinals, I think it was. Um, But I was at the Union watching. Mm. And it was just absolutely beautiful Mm -hmm. to see everybody who was there, who was Moroccan, celebrating their country and their culture and praying. Um, You look at connections to Palestine and how the Moroccans Mm -hmm. were carrying the Palestinian flag. Honestly, I think I saw it from them more than their own flag. Right. And it's it's just absolutely beautiful to see. And it, it really shows how, in terms of nations that have been colonized, how it's taken them this long to mm. get back to where they should be when you talk about immigration to other countries. I mean, look at look at France. Yeah. Look at their team and where their players are from and their parents are born. And it says a lot about yeah. colonization and slavery's yeah. impact on football. Absolutely. Yeah, I think— uh, for those who don't know, the majority of France's team is actually their parents are African born. And I, the the migration of of people from certain regions to kind of these European super, super powerhouses when we talk about soccer, um, that really is a form of brain drain that we see in the global economy as well. You know, people mm-hmm. going to university in the U.S. or people finding jobs in other countries. It's the same in soccer. You see talent from Africa, from South America going elsewhere to essentially make the rich richer. Uh, It is a form of brain drain. But so for Morocco to go that far, it is really inspiring to see homegrown talent, uh, to see new players come onto the national stage and to see new forces and really just an equalizing of football. You know, it is not just the Europe show anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, a lot of people weren't expecting that, um, especially when you look at even Senegal, who are champions of Africa. Mm -hmm. People talk about how, oh, AFCON, which is the African version of like, it's it's a tournament in Africa and whoever wins it is like the champions of Africa, um, basically. And we have one for a lot of different continents. So there's an American one, Copa America. There's a Latin American one. There's an English one. Um, but a lot of people have said that that tournament just isn't as good. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's an, a biased opinion. It's an incorrect one, in my opinion. Um, but you look at teams like Senegal and Morocco who come into the World Cup as underdogs and really show the world what they can bring to the table. Um, and... Yeah, like you were saying about the brain drain, too. I think um, Latin America and South America is also an example of that. Yeah. You look at Brazil in particular, mm-hmm. um, their national team, I don't 
out of that starting 11, I don't think a single one of them plays in Brazil. <laughs> yeah. um, they all play overseas and most of them play in Europe. And so you look at stuff like that and you say, wow, that's kind of sad, but also interesting to see how globalization has shifted where the big football clubs are to mm-hmm. where the money is mm-hmm. um, and kind of seeing in terms of that globalizing responsibly and equitably, seeing how the money trails do really lead people in different directions. Yeah, especially when we talk about Africa. Um, a lot of African nations have football academies uh, from their former colonizers. So, you know, Germany's got many academies in Africa, Spain, Belgium. Mm-hmm. They've got these academies that they are stationed to essentially sweep up African talent yeah. and bring them overseas to develop them further. So when we talk about equitable globalization, you know, it's really a return of resource, of power, of authority to those who have been marginalized, you know, because it's not that Africa doesn't produce good players. It's that they're shipped off elsewhere through colonialism. That's still very real today. Exactly. Exactly. Now for the lightning round, Kayla and I will be alternating between finishing each other's sentences. We've each prepared six prompts for each other to finish. We haven't seen each other's prepared prompts before, so this is the first time we're hearing them. Hopefully this goes well. Yeah, we'll see. Some of them will be related to football. All of mine are, so we'll see what happens. Um, And I'm going to start by reading off my prompts to Kayla, and she's going to be answering them. Oh, boy. So we're going to start. This one's already answered, but favorite club? Barca. Woo. Mescun club. If you could see any player win the World Cup in history that hasn't yet... Are you um, serious? Who? I, she's a messy girl, guys. I did this one on purpose. Oh, my God. You guys actually can't see, but I'm wearing a messy shirt that I ordered of after he won. Of course you are. Oh, it's um, beautiful. Well, my dream was always for Messi. He deserves it. Uh, going forward, I really want to see Mbappe win it again. I think he is the the next talent coming up. Okay, so who hasn't, though? Who out of someone oh, who hasn't? Oh, who hasn't? Sorry. Yeah, who hasn't Oh, already. Neymar. Oh, Neymar. Neymar. Okay, He's that's my fair. guy. He's Neymar my guy. Neymar de Silva Santos Jr., huh? Yes. Yes. All right, number three, which stadium would you want to watch a game at most and why? Wembley. It just has so much history, and I think English football just goes so hard. That is so valid, yes. What position do you play? Both of us play. Let's preface that question. (laughs) Center back, defense. Center back, yes. Kayla and I have played each other in intramurals Mm -hmm, before, and mm -hmm. I play striker, so Mm -hmm. we go head-to-head a lot. We do, we do. (laughs) We both get competitive. Let's see, number five, favorite men's player and favorite women's player? Favorite men's player, Messi. um, Mm -hmm. That's not a bandwagon, that's just facts. And favorite (laughs) women's player, I really like... Marta for her Ooh, for yes. her flair just like I like Neymar for the same reason I love Brazilian samba soccer no it's amazing and she is definitely have you ever seen her play live oh yeah, yeah. she is she's so good. it's so cool she's awesome uh and number six this one pay attention to Kayla's answer guys if you're interested in learning more about soccer <laughs> what are your go-to sources for your soccer information, where do you go to to see transfer rumors, for example, stuff about Sources. clubs? Oh, Insta- apps. Instagram is like Instagram, un- like not super reliable, but I feel like they always have like the hottest news. Yeah, yeah, or just you know Fox or ESPN for the yeah. reliable stuff. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. All right, all right. Ava's turn. Here we go. My turn. <laughs> uh, mine are much shorter questions, so maybe you're just gonna give me some one word answers here. <laughs> Um, best team? Manchester United. Worst team? Manchester City. 
<laughs> I'm dead. Oh my god. Favorite thing about soccer? Ooh, that's a tough one. Probably just kind of what we've been talking about today, just how globalized it is mm-hmm. and how like I've made so many friends. I mean, like Kayla, you're one of them. Like I've made I've just made so many friends because of the sport, even if we say mm-hmm. um, even if we support different teams. It's just so it connects everybody together. Right. Least favorite thing about soccer. Um, header. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do not like heading the ball, and I'm like a striker yeah. too, or a winger, so I have to get my head on them sometimes, yeah. and I just don't like Those it. Those cushion- concussions are for real. They really are. Um, one bad word when you think about globalization. Globalization. Um, monetary abuse, which is two. Mm, no, that's fair. Um, that's fair. But I think that's definitely something that comes to mind. It's just financial abuse Mm -hmm. and one good word when you think about globalization um hmm. probably like connections again Mm -hmm. um and that ability to connect through cultures through the sport to learn about each other you look at Messi at the world cup with the robe he was wearing which is a symbol of um Qatar culture and religion Mm -hmm. uh so stuff like that that it's super important and good for connecting absolutely We really thank everyone for tuning in today to our Global Campus podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. This is really just the surface that we've scraped here on on the subject of globalization and soccer. So if you're interested, really dive deeper. There's some really interesting stories going on now and in the past. And I and I think as we move forward, only only more is going to go on and develop. Yeah, definitely. I would say if you're interested in the book we talked about, um, that's called A Theory of Globalization, How Soccer Explains the World by Franklin Foer. Definitely give that a read. Um, Like Kayla said in Lightning Round, you can follow clubs on Instagram. You can follow different sporting networks. Mm -hmm. Um, You can sign up for club emails if you find a club that you really like. You can look up the histories. Just discover more about it or ask someone who's wearing a jersey if Mm -hmm. I mean you don't know what I look like but if you see a Manchester United jersey say hi like we're all friendly for the most part yeah and big shout out to the women's FIFA World Cup going on this August in New Zealand I am hoping and praying I can get tickets to go but support the women's game as well for sure that's definitely a topic for a whole nother day but something to definitely think about and tune in this summer to watch it um it's gonna be big it's gonna be awesome uh the u.s is gonna be challenging for another world cup england's gonna be challenging them Mm -hmm. um the english women's team just won the euros first major Mm -hmm. tournament win Mm -hmm. for england as a nation since 1966 when their men's team won the world cup so it's a big deal australia's got a great team so has brazil so definitely tune into that but thank you guys for joining us on the podcast today we really appreciate it yeah and we especially like to thank Nakia for having us on uh we hope you guys have been able to learn something new about football and the impact it has and and maybe one day it'll be fans like us I don't know definitely we'd love to see you or talk to you about it at some time but for now be sure to tune in to the next episode and Kayla and I are going to be signing off yep we're going to be signing off with our globalization podcast you heard it here first (laughs) we're going to copyright that term oh yes we will thank you so much guys thank you guys thank you for joining our podcast today remember to subscribe and tune in each month as we elevate diverse voices and experiences across our global campus.